You are listening to Cinema Rex. It is an Iranian film podcast. Episode 11, Abbas Kiarostami's The Wind Will Carry Us. Durud bayar shoma, dostan aziz. You listen to Cinema Rex podcast. I am Kaba Mohebi. And I am Farhan Moradi. Wait, I should also say Cinema Rex podcast where we discuss all things Iranian film. Yeah. Cinema, television, music, writing, comedy, dramatic arts, juggling, plumbing, taxes. Do we ever discuss Iranian taxes? <laughs> we could. Okay. Well, also, why Iranian do you taxes. sound so cranky? Like, what What happened to you this it's, morning? It's tax season, maybe. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, it's tax season. Is that what it is? I, wait, you said I sounded sultry before, and now I sound cranky. Yeah, you did sound sultry before, and all of a sudden we start it's recording, more. and you're like, Dustan Aziz, uh, welcome to the uh, Cinema Rex podcast, I guess. Uh, Do that shama, everybody. Dustan <laughs> Aziz. Much better. All right, welcome let's go. Take two. Rex. No, this is all staying in. <laughs> we have another guest on our show. Wow. Can I guess who it is? Yes. Susan Sarandon. Yes. That's so good. You got Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, do you want to introduce our guest, Farn? Uh, our guest is a filmmaker and our very good friend, Tara Aghdashlu. I think we could do better than that, Farhan. Tara is a writer, director, poet, born in Iran. As a former journalist and a documentarian, she focused on Middle Eastern and international politics, art, and culture. In recent years, she's been writing, directing, and producing independently before transitioning to film. Her debut short film, The Ride, was commissioned by BFI Network and premiered in CineQuest Festival and has been selected in festivals internationally and won Best Short Film at Nostalgia Film Festival. Her second short film, Bridge, was produced by Cusini Productions and BBC and premiered at BIFA and BAFTA, qualifying Norwich Film in 2023, and is currently in the circuit. And her third short film, Empty Your Pockets, was her first Persian-language film produced with OPC Film and Intermission Films. Tara, Mm -hmm. welcome to the Cinerax Podcast. I am so excited to be here with you guys. And just observe the chemistry, the sass <laughs> between the, the two of you. The sultry sounds <laughs> of bad love crankiness. I love it. I love it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on our show. Yeah, thank you for being here. Which, which of us is more sassy when you're listening? I mean, the beauty of it is the, is the give and take. You know, I feel like there's like moments, there's a tango, like any good drama, there is a tango. So when you say give and take, you mean I give and he takes, right? (laughs) I don't know. That makes me the protagonist. (laughs) Tara, I got questions for you instead of making this about me and (laughs) Farah. I'm here to, I'm I'm entertained. So people who have uh, clicked on this already know what film we're doing, but we had messaged you directly and asked you to be on our podcast and asked you what film you would like to talk about. So would you like to introduce the film and also tell us a little bit about your thoughts, relationships with, with the film and why you decided you want to do it? Yeah, I think The Wind Will Carry Us may not be everyone's go-to film with Kiara Stami. And even for me, the films that I have most often returned to are um, Close Up and Taste of Cherry, Ten. But The Wind Will Carry Us, I remember watching it for the first time as a kid. And if I'm giving away my age, that's fine. It's, you know, I'm aging like fine wine. I don't mind. And I watched it in Iran and I was gripped and I was gripped throughout the whole thing. And 
I could barely, you know, follow the story necessarily, <laughs> but I walked out of the cinema and I was ju just so filled with um, this sort of excitement for life and, and just touched by it emotionally. So that's why I was really curious to go back to it and pay homage to it. But I was a little bit nervous <laughs> because I haven't watched it that often. As you guys maybe also feel, a lot of the seminal films for a lot of artists or filmmakers um, that you grow up with or at some point really fall in love with, you might visit later on and you're like, oh, I don't know, you might feel differently about it or maybe it hasn't aged well or you've grown as a person and you're just interested by mm -hmm. other things. Um, and definitely my perspective on the film has evolved in so many ways. Uh, but it still touched me and it's so quintessentially Kiarostami and um, so bare and so um, so honest that I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be introducing it with you guys. I have to say that I'm very impressed with your work as a director. I've seen two of your short films that you very graciously sent over. Bridge, which is about a young receptionist who forms a bond with a patient over the phone and how the two uh, connect with one another. And I thought, first of all, it's beautifully shot. It's got breathtaking performances. And it, to me, it seems to like dredge up a lot of themes of regret and finding allies in the unlikeliest of places. Where was your thinking with some of those themes when you were developing the story? But how does something like The Wind Will Carry Us or other Kiarostami films influence that? Um, so Bridge is actually out of the two shorts. Well, out of all the work that I've done is the one that didn't originate with my story. It's based on an award-winning poem that the star and writer Gemma had worked on, developed from her own experience working as a receptionist. And very early on in, in, in the conceptions of it into a film, I got on board and we sort of developed it together. And the reason I even said yes to that to begin with was because it came from a poem. And as someone who considers herself as a poet first, it all kind of felt really attractive to me. I, I liked working with the material and her because because she's a poet, I felt like we understand we understand each other's language and maybe we can do something that's a little bit less traditionally scripted in the sense of protagonist, mm -hmm. you know, goal, obstacle, all these things. Like we kind of flesh it out a lot and the relationship between the two women changed immensely from that first iteration and the poem to what it actually ended up being because I ended up incorporating some of the backstory of the lead actors, the, the other um, actress, the, the woman playing Kirsty, the person on the other side of the phone. I kind of incorporated yeah. her backstory into the story because it did end up being that we found out that the two actors actually did go to school together and that became a focal point for the characters as well. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm like, oh, this is all like a bit of a Kiarostami vibe. Like he exactly. integrates mm -hmm. um, reality into fiction and vice versa. And poetry being a massive, I mean, his his films are poetry in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I, I don't go as formalistically into it as someone like Kiarostami likes doing. But I, I remind myself often that... Mm, that's sort of who I am as a person and it should probably come out in my films. And I try not to listen too much to people who try to put it a little bit more into that kind of a traditional narrative box as much as I can. Um, that's really cool. Thank you.
Can you tell me a little about the ride? One thing I thought was really fascinating about that short was this idea of like the presumptions we make about one another and the assumptions about who we are and who we want out of this life. And I found that there's actually this strange tangential relationship with even kind of the same theme also existing in Bridge. Could you talk a little bit about that as a writer and director of what, you know, what you, the kind of things you were exploring in that film? Because I thought it was a fantastic film. Thank you. Yeah, I think the ride in so many ways, um, well, the ride was officially my first narrative project. And I was, um, I think it started out with a lot of ideas that I was trying to learn how to trim and edit and distill into what it ended up being, I guess, in the film. I'm always fascinated by perceptions. I think as an immigrant, you become really aware of it because, you know, or as the other, quote unquote, you know, when I landed in Canada and I said, I'm from Iran, everyone was like, what, Iraq? Like the axis of evil? Um, so there was this, such a discord between what I thought I am, who I am and how I was perceived. And then, and you don't have to be an immigrant, you, you know, we're always sort of, um, tied to our, you know, ethnicity, our gender, our, like all of these identities that people perceive and project things onto. And you're just standing there trying to kind of quote unquote, be yourself or, um, mm -hmm. be as honest as you can, but you can't always escape it. And also, as you said, the tension of what you see yourself as. And I think the people around you can have such a hold over that. I think in a relationship, especially, um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder or like the gaze of the lover or the beloved. They are so powerful mm -hmm. and they can hold you back or they can really inspire you and propel you. So and these were some of the themes that I was kind of trying to explore with uh, with these characters and how they were, you know, how how their identities was shaping each other, how the imbalances um, came to play. And then having this kind of third character of the uh, the amazing truck driver, um, Harry, how that kind of disrupts these um, assumptions and presumptions. I think as, an, as a filmmaking experience, it was really challenging because as I say, it was three characters, each with their own arc in a moving truck. And it was, it was really psychological. It was a very psychological experience. Mm. And uh, I learned a lot from it. I am very fascinated with your transition, especially from poetry into filmmaking, because I've always felt that filmmaking is poetry in motion. Potion. <laughs> poetry in motion is potion. Oh, <laughs> potion. Um, sometimes you just need a good potion to, to keep your life going, you know? Um... <laughs> Can I ask you, Tara, just just because it's so fascinating to me, you had an atypical like household growing up. You know, your, your, your father is a famous painter, legendary painter. And I just wonder, as an artist yourself, can you speak about just what that was like growing up in a house that just celebrated art so much? It's brimming with deep appreciation for the craft and beauty of all arts. Was that a huge influence for you? Or do you feel like you were pushing back against a style or, or a tone? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I think about this a lot. I, on a good day, I, I, I really appreciate, as you say, the kind of that a household that values art uh, inherently, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
whether it's art on the walls or artists that come and go, friends, students, all types of interesting creatives, filmmakers, poets, you know, these were the people that I was around. There were books covering all the walls and all that stuff. So you grow up and you're like, this is, well, you don't, you're not necessarily aware of it when you're little, that's your normal. I think mm-hmm. for me, it was sort of stepping out of that bubble, especially in Iran and realizing, oh, this is kind of special and it's a, a little bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I constantly have to watch what I say about my family and to who I say it. And so you, you become a little bit paranoid as most people are in Iran. Um, but, but it's, it, it gives you this sense of possibility and imagination, which is incredible. And I'm so grateful for. Um, but at the same time, I struggled a lot because of, um, sort of how well-known the family was and was becoming and, you know, well-known doesn't mean rich or successful in, in the typical sense, you're still working mm-hmm. with struggling artists at times and you might not, you know, have some of the most basic things because, you know, my dad um, made money off of selling his paintings. There wasn't like a side mm-hmm. thing or a wealthy family that had tons of land and factories. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you struggle too, you know, that's, that's part and parcel of it. But I think the thing that I struggled with the most was also just in Iran, this sense of everything I did. I remember I'd go to school at the age of whatever, seven or eight, and I would take my homework home or like my painting homework to school. And my teacher would be like, did your dad do this? And this thing of whatever successes I I had, or if I got a good mark, or if I ate something, it was always, oh, it's because of the family. It's because of the dad. And, and now it's kind of funny and I laugh at it and I've moved beyond it primarily because we migrated to a country where no one knew who I am and my last name mm-hmm. was not sexy. <laughs> it was like 20 difficult <laughs> letters of the alphabet and they're like, you don't speak English, you're a fob, get away. I'm like, fine. Um, so that was amazing because I had to build myself back up and then I was like, I think, I think I'm okay. But that, that was a little bit challenging, that shadow. And one of the reasons that I think I ran away from art ostensibly and kind of got into journalism and more political stuff and activism other than that having that kind of desire as a woman growing up in Iran and witnessing the system and how fucked up everything is to be away from the art world to be mm-hmm. my own person mm-hmm. and um not have to deal with any of that noise and fortunately or or unfortunately I ended up going back to it cuz it was just it feels like home. Did you ever pursue painting as a as a venture of or like, like a creative outlet? Because I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about painting, even though like everybody in your family is somehow involved <laughs> Emma, in, yeah. in painting or curation. I do paint. I used to paint a lot more and I still paint. It's amazing for me in terms of just meditating via painting yeah i i paint i don't kind of do it um for anyone else or for any other purpose than just for myself meta painting yeah it's when you meditate and paint. yeah exactly and it goes with the potions man yeah. you're just with- banging these out <laughs> but i always say i i think the thing with 
I think the beauty of, of have growing up amongst these people, I value it a lot more now looking back and thinking mm. about what these artists were doing when they were my age, when I was little in Iran. And I'm so mm -hmm. enamored by it, but also like coming from an artist family, everyone's emotional and everyone wants to talk about everything. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. also that type of thing that has its beauty and pain. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like, like most things in life, there's a double-edged sword to everything. It's a good transition into talking about this film because not only is the name of this film taken from a poem, but there's tons of dialogue throughout this film that is just exchanges of poetry. So with that, Kavit, do you want to give us a, uh, a brief summary of The Wind Will Carry Us? I'd be happy to, Farron. Thank you for asking. A camera crew arrives in a remote region of Kurdistan because they've learned that an extremely old woman is about to die and they want to record the folk ritual that will follow her passing. But it soon becomes apparent to the crew's principal photographer, Behsad, that the woman's passing might take longer than anticipated, forcing them to become temporary inhabitants of the small Kurdish village, Shah Purabad. Behsad spends his days posing as a city engineer, familiarizing himself with the village inhabitants, chiefly a young boy named Farzad, who spends his days studying for school and working in the fields. As the elderly woman's health wavers between ill and good health, the anticipation and frustration grows between Behzad's crew as they discuss abandoning the project and returning home. But Behzad is adamant about sticking the course and waiting to film the folk ritual, unaware of how long the woman has left and what that means for their timeline. Their disorientation, apparent from the opening moment of the film, gradually spreads to the spectators, and the film assumes many guises. A satirical portrait or self-portrait of a self-involved filmmaker and an ethnographic or documentary examination of an exotic culture and an often comic illustration of the vanity of human wishes. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 97% and an audience score of 84%. So Tara, what did you think of The Wind Will Carry Us? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's uh, definitely one of, his, one of Kurosami's top five pieces. And it really is an incredible example of his obsession with life and death and the sort of circularity of, um, or the circular nation of life and death. And, you know, we can unpack how in almost every fiber of the film, he ends up looking at this um, tension Uh, I, I like it. I think the performance is, as you say, sometimes satirical, even unintentionally satirical and sometimes extremely tender and nuanced um, are, are really incredible to watch. Um, I have my qualms with it. I think it's a, a beautifully timeless piece of Iranian cinema by virtue of this urban versus rural clash almost and the scenery the landscape the you know the languages that are spoken different dialects i think it's it's a beautiful piece and as we were talking about earlier it's it's really poetry in motion baron i liked it a lot i really liked the comparative nature of the film versus the poetry that is often referenced throughout the dialogue That to me was actually very refreshing. I kind of wish that there was like an interactive <laughs> mode for the film where you could like press a button and then it tells you where the poem's taken from. Because there was a, a lot of little bits and pieces of poems that would even be thrown in there, which I'm sure 
someone yeah. with a better academic background in in Iranian poetry would be able to identify. But there were some that I was like, I don't know where this is from, and I would try to find it, and I couldn't. I'm also curious to know if there are better subtitles out there, just because in general, I find that translations of Persian poetry aren't very good. I think that a lot of double entendres, triple entendres, like the the rhythmic nature of Persian poetry, a lot of that stuff is constantly yeah. missing when Persian poetry is translated. But this film, the subtitles in this film, I think did even more disservice to the poetry than often published English translations of poetry are able to do. And even when it wasn't poetry, just the exchanges between people was also very poetic. There's a doctor character in the film, for example, where everything he says is like pearls of wisdom, endless treasures coming out of this guy's mouth. It was it was really great. Also, the the sincerity of the children in the film was very touching to see and contrasting that against the more like brutish nature of the journalist. I really like the interactions of the older characters, especially the lady who runs the cafe. She might be my favorite character in the film. She was wonderful. It felt like I was a guest in this town watching this film. And I think that that proves that the film was made really well. Overall, uh, I really enjoyed it. What do you think, Kaveh? This is my first time watching this film. And I find Kiarostami's films are not films that can be interpreted and deciphered on first viewings. I often find the films that I love the most of his is on repeat viewings that I discover what the film's about. Mm. And I found this film quite challenging. I enjoyed it, but I think I need to watch it again because it's lower on the tiers of the Kurosami films I've seen in the past. So with this, I really, really want to watch it again because it was in the studying of this film after watching it in prep for this podcast, I started unpacking what it was about. I think you see in this film, Kiarostami is a very experienced director who's challenging himself and his audience in a way he hasn't done so in the past. This film seems like a critique, not of just of himself, but of cinema as a landscape of art in and of itself. It very much reminded me of Life and Nothing More, or And Life Goes On, in that there's, he, in both versions, he's got a, a, a surrogate for himself. Mm-hmm. essentially a person playing himself and he's pairing himself up with a little boy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this time when I was watching, I was like, oh, I'm starting to think like he is both of these people in all of these films. He's mm-hmm. both the grown up adult director showing up to do some research or prep for something. Mm-hmm. And he's the little boy full of like wild eye wonder and curiosity. And that's stuff I really loved. One thing I will also say that I really loved was I think this is actually the most beautiful landscapes I've seen him photograph in film yet. Yeah. This is much more beautiful. I mean, he he does like beautiful devastation in a life goes on and life goes on. It's because you're looking at like earthquakes Mm. and devastation. It was beautiful in its own way, but even compared to something like where's my friend's house, this, this village is gorgeous. And the cinematography is breathtaking. And I think actually visually it might be one of his most beautiful films. Mm. The way it's like, he's upped his game to a next level in this film. It's the story for me. It's the script. And I know that Kurosami, most Iranian film doesn't follow the classic Hollywood mm. stuff, but I, I need to find myself attached to a character to really enjoy the journey. And in a strange way, he was like, this was one of my least favorite protagonists of all of his films. Yeah. But visually and cinematography, the language that I haven't studied and don't understand, I was, my breath was taken away. Like, you, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful You film. prefer the cinematography of this to Where's the Friend's House? Yes. Interesting. 
One last thing I will just say is I noticed some interesting different things. Like it, I could feel his experimentation in this film. You know that extreme close-up of him shaving? Mm. You know, when he's looking at the camera? Yeah. That moment made me take pause mentally because I was like, huh, that is not a very Kiarostami shot at all. Yeah. That almost felt like a Spike Lee moment. Well, I feel like it is. And we can talk about it when we get to deeper okay. analysis. Because I, I had the same thought at first. And then something occurred to me that I was like, oh, this okay. is intentional. And I, I think I know why. Okay, good. I'd like to know. Um, also, no music in this film, I don't think, right? At all. Yeah. No. There's a little bit of diegetic music in the village, but that's it. Behind the scenes in trivia, according to the documentary A Week with Kiarostami, when the actors, principally the lead actor, Behsad Dorani, arrived at the village, he didn't know a thing about the role, except for the fact that he was going to play the role of a director of a TV program, in his words. There was never a script given to the actors. And Kiarostami would instruct them on what the scene and the structure was bit by bit. Behzad claimed that Kiarostami kept the characters a secret from the actors. Behzad kept asking, but Kiarostami said he wouldn't tell them until the shooting had ended. Yeah, and, and funny enough, because you were talking about the shaving scene, that's the scene that he used to test, um, screen test Behzad. Um, oh, yeah. okay, cool. And... And generally, Kiarostami doesn't is it does not care for scripts. So I think that's definitely yeah. probably why you're picking up on the chaos that is <laughs> the story yeah. and the plot in some films more than others. But generally, he had an aversion to scripts. Yeah, it's yeah. it's fascinating because he insists that he had a script when it comes to where's the friend's house because it was known that he had an aversion to scripts. So when he was asked about Whereas the friend's house not having script, he was like slightly offended, but also slightly um, coy. But he was he was kind of touched by the question mm -hmm. because he was like, oh, this that's actually a high praise and high compliment to me that you thought this film didn't have a script. It did have a script. And I spent a lot of time on it, which is fascinating when with this there, if, if there likely was one, but he was keeping it very private. So he would he would yeah. write at night a lot with a lot of his films. Like he would go home after a day of shooting, write and sketch some ideas and then go. Like I think this this film they shot for 40 days, but he was planning wow. it. He was planning it for like a few years. Also, according to that same documentary, Kiarostami's crew painted flowers on some of the walls of the villagers' houses to give more decor. And there's a scene where one villager expresses annoyance that they did so, saying that she doesn't like these particular flowers. So there's a scene you can see Kiarostami saying, why are you so grouchy? She's like, I don't like these flowers on my house. It's like, we painted beautiful flowers on your house. She's like, I don't like these flowers. <laughs> I just think it's a funny little scene I caught in the documentary that was really good. Should have painted uh, hyacinths or songbook. <laughs> <laughs> There is a great deal of sequences that are uh, off-screen voices, people we don't see, the camera crew, the man in the pit. In an interview, when asked about the idea of these unseen voices, Kiarostami said, the architecture of space and dimensions are six ways, up, down, left, right, front, back. But in film, we're only seeing one of these dimensions. That is the dimension right in front of us. And using off-screen sounds is a witness to remind us that we are only looking at one dimension. It doesn't mean that life isn't going around all around us. So he was really fascinated by just mm. constantly having unseen voices to remind us that cinema only shows one direction, but life happens 360 degrees. That's cool. That was his answer to that question. The title is a reference to a poem written by famous modern Iranian female poet. Furukh Farukh Saad. Which, uh, yeah, a lot of, I mean, like, like you mentioned, Farah, a lot of the lines will be from her poems. Um, this film was included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die, edited by Steven Schneider. 
chosen by Cahiers du Cinéma uh, as one of the 10 best pictures of 1999. It was rated number two. And it's also one of the 10 best movies of all time, according to Gary Oldman, the actor. <laughs> I love. He put this at number 10. I saw that. I saw that. He put this at number 10 and he put number one of Children of Paradise. Ooh. So a fan of Iranian film. Iranophile. That's what I have for behind the scenes and trivia. Is there stuff, anything that you guys feel like you want to add? I mean, I ended up listening to some conversations with um with some of the crew posthumously about the film and um yeah i think things are going to come up but you know when we're talking about him not having a script or you know the the you know and i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more about his directing style it, it, it was fascinating for me to learn that he actually spent a lot of time for example, cleaning up entire fields in the way that he wanted mm -hmm. them to be or painting a lot of the houses white because he wanted them to be clean and white. Mm -hmm. So as much as you feel like this is just a, a director and a small crew and a and an actor doing this thing and you and you hear about him not really preparing a script and stuff, there is a lot of intervention that he is constantly enacting and whether it's physical intervention in the space or psychological, uh, the way he would hold back information or give specific information or even mislead people. And those were some of the qualities that the protagonist was also doing, obviously, Behzad, the character of Behzad, because when he arrives, he tells everyone, don't tell anyone we're here for a film. Yeah. Tell people we're here to find artifacts and um, riches. Treasure hunters. Yeah, Treasure yeah. hunters. And I and I found that both an echo of maybe what Kiarostami kind of does as, a, as an artist and as a director, and mm -hmm. sometimes to a fault maybe, given our current standards of directing perhaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but also it's, it's a cultural thing. It's a culture of distrust and secrets and... People mm -hmm. being a, afraid of giving each other their intentions or who they are. It's also a culture of um, horafat. Um, what's horafat? Superstition. Superstitions. Superstitions. Yeah. You know, there is this belief that if you say, you know, you can get jinxed, for example, if you if you say something that you're going to do. Um, mm -hmm. And ritual is at the heart of the story, too. Obviously, the premise for mm -hmm. this protagonist being in this village is to record this ritual we don't ever get to see, actually, as an audience properly. Mm -hmm. So those were all like echoes and uh, that kind of repeat themselves, which I was fascinated about. And, and I think he does this quite often. He has a few films where, like Under the Olive Tree, he's also talking about a director. There's a director character who's trying to make something similarly close up is, is talking about a director. And it's fascinating for me just watching um, echoes of, of these fascinations that he had, not just with the world around him. And, you know, we can talk more about what he was fascinated with in this film, but also with the act of filmmaking and capturing and, and making art and the creative process. It's funny that you say echoes too, because when you're talking about this repetitive lyrical idea, it, he it's so evident in his work how much he loves kind of the rep 
repetitive motion of yeah. action. Mm-hmm. So like this, I mean, this film, he constantly, the phone, every time the phone rings, the guy has to get out and get in his car, drive up to the top of the hill. Every time. And you constantly see him doing this. And a lot of the shots are almost like repeating themselves. Yeah. And he does that in Where's My Friend's House. He does that in. Yeah, like, I was going to say. Life did, goes yeah. on. It's like he's fascinated with the lyrical, poetic nature of cinematography of like, we're seeing these things again and again. And it's like when the line repeats itself in a poem. Yeah, it might exactly. Have a greater, it might have a different impact the second time you see it, or it might have greater uh, value, you know. And so he's. I like that too because it it starts to establish rules of engagement within the world of story, where it's like, okay, when this happens, the natural order of things is you say, "Please hold while I get to higher <laughs> ground." He runs to his car. He gets in his car. He drives on this road. He tells the people on the side of the road, "No, thank you." He like gets to the top of the thing, and then he check. And this happens in other scenes as well, and in, in other movies. But it's nice because it establishes rules of the story. It's this is the world that we find ourselves in. This is how it works, and I really like that because in in some cases you can have movies where it's very obvious, right? Like you can have a fantastical film where you have space wizards and the force and all this stuff. And you're like, these are the rules of the world. And similarly, you can have a a film that's very self-contained that takes place in this small Kurdish town. And there's its own rules of engagement for the townspeople. There's the rules of engagement for himself with what he has to do when he gets a phone call. And And it creates this very distinct world, which is fascinating to be a part of as a viewer because you're like oh this is a new place that we're in there's different rules here to understand and to follow mm-hmm. and to your point Kava too when you were talking about the the poetic nature of that it almost feels repetitive in the poetic sense where in a lot of poems a lot of poems that draw from Sufi inspiration you'll get a lot of repeated verses and as the verses repeat you get new meaning yeah, I actually had the word Sufi because um, when I was I, w- I was picturing this sort of dance and this circularity mm-hmm. and and it reminded me of the Sufi dances as well. I think the um, the beauty of that because that that repetition can also feel frustrating as an audience. You're like, oh, here he goes again, and because there aren't so many events that are happening in the script and the story, it can feel tedious, but. I feel like there is such an intentionality to it because it's almost like there are certain mundanities that he is highlighting. He takes his time with them, whether it's a very trivial conversation, because some conversations feel really profound. Some of them feel like just chatter. Mm -hmm. He kind of pauses and lets you take this trivial moment in, and maybe it's just a shot of a car passing by or an animal or whatever. And then there are moments in a film that are seemingly really important. And you and you mentioned them as well, Farhan, like actual action things happen. And he just mm-hmm. either doesn't show it or completely moves on from them. And I think that goes back to what he's trying to do as an artist is to, to slow down and make you really pay attention to things that yeah. you don't normally do. Critical reactions. This film was nominated for the Golden Lion at the 56th Venice International Film Festival. It won the Grand Special Jury Prize, which is the Silver Lion, uh, the Fibretsky Prize, and the Cinema Avenir Award at the festival. See, it's not just Farsi words I butcher. I butcher them all. 
Jonathan Rosenbaum the Chicago Re- from the Chicago Reader wrote, This ambitious comic masterpiece could be Abbas Kiarostami's greatest film to date. It's undoubtedly his richest and most challenging. You have to become friends with this film before it opens up. And then its bounty is endless. It's true. Uh, Kayla Marsh of The Village Voice said, This is a deeply, patiently observational film. And the details Kiarostami emphasizes seem somehow profound in their banality. A mystery of ineffable beauty. In a 2012 poll by the British Film Institute, seven critics ranked The Wind Will Carry Us as one of their top 10 favorite films. Yeah, told you so. (laughs) You know what we should start doing? We should also find negative quotes from people. No. Just to like throw them in. I think it would be interesting. There's one here, Luke Wyde Thompson from The New Times, not The New York Times, The New Times. Says, if you're the sort of person who just adores extremely slow-moving foreign films with a dearth of actual plot, go for it. But the rest of you have been warned. One out of five. <laughs> but but you do know, like, Kiarostami thrived off of that. Like, he, he, he notoriously said that, you know, a good film should put you to sleep. Like, why do you have to be up all the time? It's the kind of film you can play, pause, go have dinner, you know, pick mm-hmm. it up again the next day. And I think... And I think that's okay. I don't think we need to um, always be entirely gripped. But also, there are gripping, beautiful moments in it. These throwaway pieces of dialogue that on their own are an entire thesis on life. And how this Mm -hmm. theme of life and death comes through from from so many different scenes in so many different ways, whether it's him holding a lantern, the protagonist going into this sort of cave mm-hmm. and then reciting this beautiful poem, part of which is the t- the film's title um, or um, just the, the discussions about life and death. And that happens a lot as well in different contexts. For example, when the kid is uh, worried about this one question that he hasn't answered. And the question is, what is the difference between heaven and hell? And the guy is, is basically telling the kid, this is the answer. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And then he switches it up. So this sort of life, death, Uh, Or even the symbolism of the milk, which is very prominent, whether the woman who's milking the cow or he's looking for milk, he's looking for fresh milk. They're all looking for milk. There's so many different layers to it that I think the more you watch it, the more you get it. But Mm -hmm. but there is also there are moments where where I can really hear his voice. I can hear Kiarosemi from behind the camera being like, now tell him this, you know, and then just instructing the actor or the kid to say something. Mm-hmm. And you can hear Kiarostami through those actors. Yeah. And this happens in all movies and sometimes it's nice, but I personally like it when it's a bit more sparse. Right. And more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Deeper analysis. All right. You take it away. I mean, again, that the theme for me that keeps seeping through is this obsession with death and whoever is obsessed with death is actually obsessed with life, I think. So even mm-hmm. the, the premise of it, visiting this, this town and, and capturing this sort of kind of morbid story, I think is, it tells you everything that you need to know about what the story will um, teach you. And there's 
all of this darkness and yet there is all of this hope that keeps coming through. Obviously, anytime you have a child actor and the way that Kiarostami engages these young characters as these sort of innocent, naive observers who somehow say so many incredibly profound things, um, there is a sense of hope that enters this darkness, enters this decay, death, morbid framework. Um, and I think it's also quite true to the Iranian society and its theme in the sense of this sort of very urban, you know, kind of, I guess, cool guy, young, cool guy with his... <laughs> at the time, fancy mobile phone and whatever, mm. his fascination with the rural landscape. Mm, yeah. Iran over the past 50, 60 years, I mean, even before the revolution, it was this urbanization and how people from rural agricultural parts of Iran were kind of mm -hmm. all of a sudden flooded into urban cities and that the tension that brought that a lot of people say that was one of the precursors for the revolution. So this sort of obsession and fascination with this part of society, I think is interesting and, and there's a lot to be said about it, but there is also a sense of almost this character looking for authenticity and something real, almost exotifying these mm -hmm. villagers and their characters um, in a way that's beautiful, but a little bit um, condescending at times, I found. What do you have on a deeper analysis? Because I have two major mind bombs I'm going to throw at you like a, like a university student. So one thing I noted was in a lot of religions, there is this notion that we are we come from dust and we'll return to dust, right? So it's it's mentioned a lot in... Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i faith. And this film, I think, touches on that a lot. This idea that we come from dust and will return to dust. There's the apple that came from a tree and the tree sprouted from the earth, right? And then mm. when the apple falls, it escapes the hands of the elder. It almost reaches the child and first it, it returns to the earth. It's almost like the apple is trying to return to the earth. There's the bone, which is pulled from the earth. And once that bone is pulled from the earth, all of a sudden, the harmony of the town is shifted. Mm. It's, it's taken out of balance, right? Mm -hmm. At first, he's playing with the bone and he's not treating it with the reverence that it probably deserves. He's robbed the dust of this town of this bone, right? He keeps it in his car, which is this man-made machine that he's brought from the city. He's driving around with it. He treats it like a toy. And it's not until the end of the film that he finally returns it to the earth. And I also think it's interesting the way that he returns it to the earth is he throws it into the river, which almost mm -hmm. cleanses the bone before it can return to the earth. There's a lot of moments throughout the film that play with this idea of coming from the earth and returning to the earth. There's the whole conversation with the doctor that he has multiple times. There's this quote that I wrote down from the doctor. He says, Old age is a terrible illness, but it's not the worst. That would be death. Death is the worst when you close your eyes on this world of beauty and wonders and God's bounty and you never return. And uh, to me, this whole film is about that. It's about how we come from the dust and we'll return to dust. I like that. Do you want me to hit you with that the camera thing now that I was talking about? If it's in deeper analysis. So initially, that shot that you were talking about, there's a moment in the film where 
the for those who haven't seen it, there's a moment in the film where the main character, the journalist, is shaving and he's doing it towards the camera. And the whole shot, he's looking into the camera as if it's a mirror. And at first, I was like, oh, this is a weird shot. Kiara Sami doesn't usually do shots like this. And I could actually see the camera in the reflection of his glasses. Like, very clearly, I could see the matte box of the camera. I could yeah. see, like, all of it reflected back in his glasses. And then I realized, oh, this is probably intentional. That it's supposed to reflect... <laughs> it's supposed to reflect uh, Kiara Sami himself in this character. That this isn't just this guy looking into a mirror, it's Kiorostami looking at himself. That this journalist is a direct stand-in for himself. That he is... This this thing that you were talking about, Kavit, where you were like, the man is supposed to be a stand-in for him and so is the child in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think this is a scene where you're seeing this put towards you in a similar way to how Kiorostami breaks the fourth wall in a lot of his own films. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of those examples where he's likely on the other side of the camera telling him, hey, say these lines, say these lines, and it's saying it back to him, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, that's what I just wrote. I was just making the note of that's the exact same thing he does in Life and Nothing More, which was my favorite scene in that film was yes. when the yeah. old man breaks the fourth wall and just like, yeah. like he just puts down the guise of like, we're making a documentary right now. So yeah, he does like doing that at times. I kind of wish he'd done more of it in this film, to be honest. Yeah. It's, it would be too on the note. I mean, it's already the, the, the whole setup is already so connected mm-hmm. in terms of what that journal is, who he is, and even his voice and his style and his glasses. Like, he, he just reminds me of Kiarostami so much. Yeah, the glasses for sure, too. Like, especially he the would, He would just need to make them tinted. Yeah. <laughs> the actor also looked like James Woods to me. Am I the only one who thought yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I Bezza. see that. Oh, I see that. That's interesting. And you know the actor James that was his first acting role, and he's um, which is very typical of Kirsten. Yeah, yeah. So no, but yeah, he yeah. used to work in film, so he was a he was mm-hmm. a DOP, and he was a first AD also. So Kiarostami mm-hmm. had met him on sets before, um, and then had this idea to work together so this one's smaller but the the character who falls in the hole and is buried in it his name is Yusuf mm-hmm. and he's found and pulled out by the caravan mm-hmm. the biblical Yusuf and uh Yusuf in the Quran as well fell in a well and he was buried and he was found by a caravan and pulled out oh I just thought it was an interesting parallel yeah did we talk about milk I did mention the milk didn't I? I want you to go I want you to actually mention that again just the presence of milk and the use of it and again in this sort of dichotomy of life and death darkness and light the team the crew uh the journalist and the unseen crew we never see his colleagues essentially uh, are mm. constantly looking for fresh milk. And and he even says in the beginning, he's like, well, we're here in a village and my team expects fresh milk and fresh dairy, which is true. Like when you go to these bits of Iran, you're always like, Let, let's go get fresh milk from the locals. And funny yeah. enough, the woman he asks this of says, well, we don't have any cows, so <laughs> we don't have mm. fresh milk. Again, it's your stereotype on us. But, but on this search, first of all, he talks about it a lot. And then when he does eventually find his way to a woman who's milking a cow, and we're, we're, that's when the Furuk poem, or is it the first time that Shabak Kuchakeman? Yes. In my night, so brief. Yes. So, so she's talking about night and hope, her addiction to her hopelessness. But there is also 
um, this tenderness that comes in uh, in the poem. And that to me was sort of the the nexus of of all of these light and dark references, mm-hmm. especially with the milk. Obviously, milk it's it's symbolic in cinema and in many films. And I think here very obviously it it's it's life, it's the life source, and it's um what these urbanites are seeking. It, it it's to return to life, or what Kiarostami is mm-hmm. seeking is is a return to life. Did you notice where the cow was found? The one cow that we see being milked in the film after many uh references to milk? It was encased in dirt. It was underground. Yeah. It was from the dust. Yes. Life was brought forth. If if milk is the stand-in for life, life was brought forth from the dust. Yes. Do you think, Tara, that there's like a, there's a maternal aspect to that too with the milk? Because when you said it's milk is used often in cinema, Kieslowski does it in the Decalogue and in the short a short story about love, a short film about love, where there's this uh, teenage boy who's watching an older woman undressing in the window. And right when he does that, he um, spills a glass of milk and it spills all over the table. And I remember in film school, we talked about how there's a maternal milk aspect to that. Like he's got a sort of Freudian attraction to this older woman who could be his mother. But also the spilling of the milk was very clearly to like symbolize sexual fluid that yeah. is now spilled all over the table from watching this woman. So I often, ever since then, I often always think there's something Freudian too about the milk because it is the, it's the, it's the, it's a nourishing fluid of love and paternal instincts. It's from mother to child. It's breastfeeding. You know, it's all of it's combined, right? So yeah. I wonder, like, do you extrapolate any of that from the milk in this? I think there are reverberations of it. I don't know if it's as literal. Um, actually, there are quite a lot of maternal um, moments. Uh, the journalist um, is is sort of living on, he's on this terrace right across from this woman who's heavily pregnant he talks about the pregnancy. He asks her about how many kids she wants to have. Um, and then almost comically a day or two later, she's back on the terrace and they're having a conversation. And he's like, oh, I asked your sister for, for some milk. but And she's like, I don't have a sister. And he's like, no, no, I was speaking to your sister yesterday who was really pregnant. And she's like, no, no, that was me. And I gave birth. And meanwhile, she's like hanging some clothes that she's just watched. She's just washed. Mm -hmm. So there is this this sort of reference to motherhood, but I don't know if it's in that sort of um, deep maternal um, uh, guise. I think it's a lot Mm -hmm. more simpler, which like, you know, when, when I, in that scene, I was like, okay, that hasn't aged well. You know, I don't think the 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 mother character is, um, I don't know, as as powerful as a lot of the other characters that he yeah unpacks for us. Do you think that the reasoning that it's shown like that is actually to show the shortcomings of the main character? And the reason I say that is because when he questions the old lady in the cafe. Old lady in the cafe, like very quickly puts him in his place. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I've never seen a, a woman barista before. And she's like, the hell are you talking about? Yeah. And he's like, what? What do you mean? And she's like, were you born like two days ago? Like, what are you? Who who gives your dad tea? And she's like, "Uh, my mom, obviously. She's like, OK, so you've seen women serve tea before. <laughs> and I love that she like very quickly puts him in his place. And then the other man in the cafe who tries to get involved 
Like, oh god, yeah. She she snaps at him too and puts him in his place too. And I was like, this this lady is on fire. I love this. So that being said, do you think that we're supposed to agree with the main character when he's asking these things, or do you think it's intentionally done to show that he's he is ignorant? Yes and no, because the conversations he has with this particular character, he also says things like, oh, you had another child, now you had 10. Or they're talking about her husband and now her husband is mm-hmm. always really busy. And then in this not very completely veiled comment, the journalist says to her, mm-hmm. oh, well, he, has, he hasn't been that busy. You know, he's been busy doing other things too. And it's, it's really cringy mm-hmm. and not just by today's standards. I think maybe the filmmaker is making a comment about people in the village, quote unquote, having too many kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know what his judgments necessarily would have been personally, but I think you repeat that over and over again, then it's not as funny or as self-aware anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, and I say that because it's also in other contexts, not just with the conversations with the woman, that there is this sort of Mm -hmm. journalist the protagonist is teasing the villagers and he's saying things that aren't so obviously inappropriate, but you get this similar through line of that perception that they have on the villagers being a little bit less than gracious. I think in the conversation with the coffee at the cafe with that woman, I think that's meant to be a good, um, yeah, you're meant like, to look how ignorant he is. Yeah. 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 But I don't know about the other one. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I kept going back and forth on whether or not I like this character. Like you said, sometimes there are scenes where when you have that other character to bounce off of him, it gives us a sense of, okay, Kiara Sami is trying to tell the audience that this person is wrong mm-hmm. to be saying these things, that the main character is wrong. I think you're not, you're not meant to like him. I don't think you're meant to like him. I think I grew mm. to like him towards the end towards the very end and i was like i think you know and and the way it's shot there is no intimacy you have one close-up of this guy i think i counted it it takes seven eight minutes before you even see him you're just hearing him talk about his work and driving into town we're not meant to really relate to this guy that much we're just meant to observe mm. him. And the people we need to fall in love with are the residents of that village. And I think he mm-hmm. does that. I think it's um, what I felt was this deep love for this village and its people, whether or not that's mm. kind of naive of him or he's exotifying them or however way you want to analyze it emotionally I felt this intense love like he's obsessed with these people and he thinks they're the most beautiful and intelligent and honest and that's mm-hmm. why these shots are lingering for minutes and minutes and that's why he co- he keeps going back to them and 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 that was what was touching for me as well and I felt equally like I was in love with them. This is a kind of gaze that a lot of directors have. A lot of directors famously have this on women. You know, they are obsessed mm-hmm. with the female body and you become obsessed looking at it. You're like, wow. But I think Kiarostami's subject is not, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially his age and his time, what were French directors making, you know, when you think about it. He's making love to this village and its uh, beauty 
Um, and that's his gaze. And I think that's, that's okay. And I don't think he's trying to teach us a lesson. I don't think he's trying to tell us that this protagonist is good or bad. I don't think he knows mm. because he's just capturing what interests him. And I think sometimes he's directing and feeding lines to the actor as himself, maybe sometimes mm. as the character that is meant to be a bit annoying. And sometimes maybe those lines are blurring. Uh, he by the end of it and i don't know if it's just by virtue of watching him do all these things and 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 the environment but i did i did have empathy for him towards the end i liked that he tried to save the guy um i actually those conversations were really nice for me the conversations he had with the guy in the ditch or yeah so those conversations were really nice for me. And, and that dynamic was quite interesting. And I like that by the end of it, I like that he was forcing everyone to stay. <laughs> I related mm-hmm. to that. I think any director relates to that. It's like, please, can we squeeze a little bit more out of this story? And, and I like yeah. that eventually he took those photos and left and he seemed to have found what he was looking for. You like that he did that? Yeah, I was I was happy. I was happy that he had a Me camera. Too. I I have issue I take issue with that. Okay, here's my lecture on the two things I want to talk about with deeper analysis. I don't know if I've mentioned David Foster Wallace in previous things, but he's got this poem called This Is Water. Mm-hmm. It's part of his commencement speech he had made. In This Is Water, he talks about there are two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? And the point of the fish story is merely that the obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And with that, I thought about, I thought about David Foster Wallace because I think this film is about the complex power and beauty of stillness and waiting, mm. which so much of our life is encumbered by. Mm-hmm. We spend so much of our life and our time waiting at red lights, in traffic, at the grocery store, at the bank. We're just so much of our life is waiting. And these moments of our lives are just passing by and we're usually just wasting them. We're not appreciating what's going around us. And I think Kiarostami is in love with noticing the banality of life. Can we find some intricate complexity in the beauty and the life around us while we're waiting for something? And I think that's what he's doing with his character, Bezad. And he's got this like anxiety his crew is getting mad at him. And I guess it's the, is it the producer that's calling him constantly? Mrs. Yeah. Budazi? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the producer of the project or something. And they're like, they is might. Is the producer or his like editor? I couldn't. Well, it's like someone like who's threatening to cancel the whole thing, right? They're like, yeah, they yeah, might pull yeah, the plug. Yeah. An editor wouldn't have that. No, power. it's. it's no, his... I'm saying like journalistic editor, not oh, like a video. Oh, yeah, 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 maybe. But it's his boss, essentially. His boss. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I was going to, and so like, you know, while we're waiting, we're like watching this beautiful landscape and it's like that thing of you're forcing, you're being forced to sit there and just take it in. You have nowhere to go. You're stuck. So you might as well appreciate Mm -hmm. the stuff around you. And that's kind of, I think what you're saying, Tara, but Beza sort of, you start to warm up to him is he is forced to start actually like taking into account these people around him and start seeing them for the people that they are. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the myth of Sisyphus, mm. you know, the Sisyphean yeah. task of rolling up a rock and then rolling back down again. Yeah. And Albert, Albert Camus, the uh, philosopher, French philosopher and writer, mm-hmm. has this, uh, the myth of Sisyphus is a, like a poem he wrote. And, and I want to tell you a quote about it because he says, I want to read directly. He goes, the gods had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly rolling a rock to the top of a mountain where it would fall back down on its own weight, only to have him roll it up again, a punishment of futile and hopeless labor. 
Uh, Sisyphus knows the whole extent of his wretched condition. It is what he thinks of during his descent. There is no fate that cannot be summoned by scorn. At that subtle moment when man glances backward over his life, Sisyphus returning toward his rock, in that sight pivoting, he contemplates that series of unrelated actions which become his fate, created by him. All Sisyphus' silent joy is contained therein. The fate belongs to him. The rock is still rolling. Basically, when he constantly gets on the phone and has to go up that hill, yeah. and he does it again and again and again just to have this phone call, it to me felt like the Sisyphusian task of having to roll up this rock up a hill. Mm. The central concern of the myth of Sisyphus is what Camus calls the absurd. So Camus claims that there's a fundamental conflict between what we want from the universe and what we find in the universe. Our expectations are not what reality is going to grant us, right? So regardless of whether we choose to accept the absurd or if we believe that life has inherent meaning. So the lesson of Sisyphus and maybe in my interpretation, the, what the wind will carry us is saying is that when we feel as if the universe is indifferent or uncaring to what our needs are, the best response may be to happily accept that yes. injustice and just move on resign it's just like this guy wants to achieve a goal and life is just saying F that you have to stay here and be stuck on this task that's not going to move you forward in life until we say so and the darkness and the dark irony of it is they're waiting on a woman to die yeah not a woman they really mm -hmm. know or it's like that's in one way is a horrible thing to wish for but also it's like the dark comic element of it that might be comic is that line, and we'll get to it when we talk about quotes, but it's like, he's like, what do you want me to do? Strangle this woman? Like, I can't, <laughs> yeah. we're just stuck. It's like, it's in God's hands, whether or not well, we move forward. Well, and I think that, that that comes back into play when he's directly faced with that decision when the guy is buried in the hole. Because he has an opportunity there yeah. to let that guy die. Oh, and then right, they'll yeah. go through the whole morning ritual anyway. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't. He immediately, like, looks around, tries to find help, and then runs out yeah, of there that's a and, great point. and gets help and comes back. So I think that 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 that's a moment where the the film goes, all right, here's a Choice. here's a um, opportunity yeah. for you to get what you want, and no one will know. Do you do it or not? Yeah. And then I and he does the right thing. I want to comment on the Camus thing. Yeah, yeah. Really quick. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, hot take. Yeah. I think Albert Camus is terrible, and I think he's overrated, what? and I I genuinely think that he's really bad. Who was that critic you said who's a contrarian? Yeah. Armand White. <laughs> we need another episode just to talk about Camus. Listen, I've read like a few of his books and I've read his his analysis on things. I I don't think he is very deep and I think he constantly misses the mark on things. Even the myth of Sisyphus, I don't think is commentary on absurdism. I think that that's him retroactively trying to take an old Greek uh, morality lesson and applying it to his own weird French philosophy. Because I also don't think that this movie is about... Like, because I here's what I'll say. If his analysis of the Sisyphus thing is correct, I think that your application of it on this film is also correct. But I don't think that this film is about the absurdity of life because time and time again, Kiara Semi tells us how life is beautiful and precious and it's something to be valued and something to be praised. He does it constantly throughout this film and other films. He also films. talks no, about I, the absurdity of life, I, though, too. I, yeah, but, but, but then those characters are corrected. They are, they are put in their place by wiser characters in this film. When Camus does it in his work, it's the wiser characters who disagree with those sentiments are always shown as the antagonists of the story and are always shown as being archaic and wrong. I, Kiara Sami doesn't do that here. I, th I have to defend the absurdity. I actually yes. think... <laughs> If we're going to tie him to any old 
dead intellectual or poet, maybe Rumi or Chayam yeah, would be better. Because that also inherently, the philosophy at core of that is life is nothing, but because it's nothing, this moment, this this specific moment in time is infinite and it's infinitely beautiful and precious yeah it's precious but it's absurd i don't think they're mutually exclusive i think it's absurd that we live in a world in which a journalist is sent to a small town to record a death you know i mean you you Mm -hmm. zoom back that fascination and he was ahead of its time because we now live in the age of who kiarostami we live in the age of taking your phone and recording the most horrible of scenes, accidents, death, mm, whatever. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. the act of the filmmaker as the observer and almost like a hunter, you know, of of, of mm-hmm. this, this uh, very sad thing called a woman dying. I think that mm-hmm. on its own is absurd. The fact that she's exactly. not dying and he has to go and ask around, how's she, how's she doing? It's kind of like he's, he's um, the angel of death, you know, he's, he's yeah. arrived and he grapples with it. There's a, there's a piece of dialogue where he asks the, the young boy, um, mm-hmm. do you think I'm a good or a bad person? And the boy says, yeah. no, I think you're a good person. But he says, but I don't think so. You, you see that he, 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 he's mm-hmm. feeling guilty um, so I do think there is, uh, there is this absurdity that keeps coming through via different accidents and things that keep going wrong, the bone, the ditch, all of these things feel completely off kilter. And he, he ends up leaving without even, you know, getting his film or recording that whole thing. But see, I, I agree with everything that you just said. The thing that I disagree with is that. I find your application of absurd, you and Kava's application of absurd on this film is different than the way Camus does it. Because when Camus is talking about the absurdity of life and the absurdity of scenarios, he's talking ultimately about how life is insignificant. Like it's not important. It's fleeting. It doesn't matter. That's Camus' whole, the core of his philosophy. While this, I feel like is baked more in Sufi philosophy. Same with Rumi, same with Khayyam, where it's, it's that when they say life is nothing, they are talking in a, in a spiritual sense that life is nothing. Well, Camus was deeply anti-spirituality and anti-God and, and, and these things. Whereas the Sufi philosophy, I think, is the polar opposite. But you don't have to... I mean, Camus is not a nihilist. I think nihilists say life is nothing and it's violent. and. <laughs> That's fair. You know, That's fair. There is a sense of... I think Camus comes from the existentialist philosophy, which says... Life mm-hmm. is nothing, dot, dot, dot. And so what? And so what will you do? Um, and mm-hmm. I think uh, Kiarostami always used to refer to himself as a tabiat gato or a naturalist. He used to say that he mm-hmm. um, he mm-hmm. just loves nature. And and it's funny, in a later interview that I was watching, he said, or sorry, in this in this book of interviews I was reading with, with my dad, actually, he says, you know what, at this age, I, I refuse to say what I believe in. Cause every time I say, I believe in something a few years later in a different interview, they say, Oh, but you said you believe this and your film. And he's like, yeah. I don't want to say anything. Yeah. Don't keep catching me. It's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. There is a humanity in Kiarostami's approach. Uh, Cause I was thinking it's really difficult to capture absurdity. Mm. And I think him lingering on a lot of these moments, 
to be open to the accidents, to not refer to this incredible Bible that we now have as the shot list or the script. And Mm -hmm. it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of confidence, I think, as an artist to be like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to follow these humans and what comes to me and what comes to them. And it's not for a lack of prep. Because did he have a, like, I doubt he had a script supervisor, did he? There's, I think, a Mrs. Ascati, because um, I was watching an interview, who was like the first AD, but she was she was saying that basically everyone was doing everything and you had to be this, yeah. like, mm. multi-talented um, individual to even be working with him. And some of the stuff she was saying about his working style, I was like, yeah, not cool. <laughs> like I I personally yeah. am not a fan of that style, but yeah. So technically he had someone helping him, but he was very secretive. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't tell anyone what his plans were. He would change his mind immediately and constantly at all times. And he would take his time, you know, shooting for 40 days. I guess mm-hmm. you, <laughs> you can do a lot. Um, We've talked now a few times about the relationship with the journalist and the child. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's worth talking about that for for a moment, that it it feels a lot, Cobb, I think you were absolutely right about it, them both being stand-ins for him, because it definitely feels like we're seeing the struggle of an individual, like the internal conflict of an individual fighting with his younger self. And this is, this is an obsession I've always had, where as a kid, I would often think about how would the older version of me react to seeing me do this? Would I be disappointed in myself? Would I be upset with the way that I'm doing things? How could I encourage myself to be better? And now that I'm older, I have the inverse feelings of that, where I'm like, <laughs> how would the the younger version of me see me now? So it's it's interesting to see that in this film, you're seeing these two sides of him interacting. And there's a scene in the film where he loses his temper on the child. Yeah. And he thinks from his adult point of view that he can have a logical conversation, apologize, and they can move on. But what he doesn't realize is that that moment is very traumatizing for the child. And I think that that could be reflective of that innocence loss where a lot of people have moments in their lives where they're like, oh, this happened to me as a kid and it forced me to grow up very quickly. And for everyone, it's different, right? So I think that this is kind of reflective of that moment. I'm going to throw another uh, perspective into this. 10 out of 10 for that analysis. I'm not disagreeing with it. I thought that's him and his son, Bahman, actually. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, when we talked about the role of Mm -hmm. the milk, the maternal element, all that stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. don't forget, Abbas was a dad of two and... Um, Mm -hmm. with Bahman, you see his name in the credits. They used to work together quite a lot and they had Mm -hmm. famously quite a contentious relationship, very intimate and by virtue of working together, I guess, um, very complex. Some of these films, you really see him either repenting for possibly Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, in this moment, he's actually talking as a father who's lost his cool. And is trying to apologize to his son in his own mm. very Iranian man way. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think mm. there is a there is a father as well as a self referential younger self. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interpretation. I think there is a father element to it as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Best scene. Tara, what was your favorite scene of the entire film? <laughs> Mostly it, it revolves around his interactions with the child. I loved all the scenes where he was going up the mountain. I, I couldn't pick a single scene. And I don't know what that says about the film, but I think it says something about the film because it does keep repeating itself. And certain scenes, I like them as the vignette that they are from beginning to end if you cut them and put them together. I also really like the turtle scene, actually, because I felt like it's such a beautifully painful way of showing this character's flaw and in a way that you don't need to be Iranian you don't need to be anything like you put that scene in front of anyone throughout time and history and they will feel feelings <laughs> and mm -hmm. they yeah. will um feel pain and they will laugh and I think that's that's a good scene which scene with the boy would you say is your favorite well, no, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep my boy reference to favorite dialogue because I have a specific dialogue that I love. I would say favorite scene, his interaction with the with the woman who brings coffee. Mm. OK. Yeah. OK. As I, a complete that is scene. also my favorite is scene. It? I love it. I think as a complete yeah. scene, it just does so much. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I, I really love that it gives agency to the town. Yeah. Because in a lot of Kiarostami's other films, he comes in and he it it he's been criticized for being pretty exploitative of different towns and villages and cultures and locals. But in, in that scene, it shows that this town has teeth. Yeah. So as he's pulling up, he's like seeing the drama unfold before his eyes. This fiery lady is putting him in his place, putting this other guy in his place. And she's like, I work hard. I'm pulling my weight. I'm doing a lot. And then he pulls out his camera to start documenting what's going on. And she's like, put your camera down. And then she continues on a rant. And then he tries to pull the camera out again. And she's like, I told you to put your camera away. Put it away. I'll take it from you again. I will. And then the next time he comes to get tea from her. She refuses. Yeah. She's like, go get your own tea. There was also like after that when... When uh, he, he comes the second time and you see the, I think it was the guy that was complaining earlier, the other patron, he gets on his motorcycle and like drives away and she's like, you'll be back, you'll be back and you'll be sorry. Or something. Remember she said something like that to him? It was like as if she's like, that's the time when she tells him to pour his own tea. You could tell she's already in a bad mood about some other scene that we never got yeah. to see. Right, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. She reminded me a lot of my grandma, my dad's mom. Fiery? Yeah. Like... Very loving. And like, you can tell that this woman is clearly also loving. Yeah. She's like, she's like serving everybody tea and they don't, she doesn't have to. We see in a later scene that she really doesn't have yeah. to. She could tell people to pour their own tea, but, I, but she is caring and she is loving and she's compassionate. And the little boy has a lot of respect for her and a lot of love for her. And the name that everyone gives her in the town is, is a, is a respectful name. But if you disrespect her, she can defend herself and she'll, she will put you in her place. She has no problem putting the other men in town in their place. I, I, I pulled up the scene right now. So because with the subtitles, it says she yells at the guy on the motorcycle driving and goes, you're a coward if you come back. <laughs> that's that's what girl. she yells at the guy. With that's bike. Yeah. She's like, you're yeah. a coward if you come but that's, back. Isn't so that good. like, I mean, I always to people who don't necessarily or haven't had exposure to Iranians, Iranian families or Iran, I'm always like, 
guys, you don't understand how badass the women are. And I mean, maybe the yeah. world mm -hmm. is seeing it a little bit more with woman life freedom. And, um, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know, grandmas, I mean, my grandma would be the Angela Merkel of Iran. If, if <laughs> law would allow it, she runs the show and she's, uh, mm -hmm. almost yeah. 90 and I call her and, you know, she's, um, asking me to translate some stuff from English to Persian because she's reading. Mm. And I mean, and, and not that they all need to be intellectuals, but there is, there is this uh, resilience and strength and they're not always silently victimized and quietly kind of operating in this system. And when you see it in this very kind of naturalized a village context, you see that it mm -hmm. doesn't just belong to the quote unquote elite. It's, uh, yeah, it's mm. very innate and it's, it's wonderful. My best scene are all the scenes of the ditch digger. I really loved it. I loved every time he returns to it. I love the conversations they had. And to me, this is so something I'm going to put in a script and steal from it. I'll do the Tarantino <laughs> thing of like, it's an homage, yeah. but I constantly loved it. it Cause it felt like he was having a dialogue with the earth. It's yeah. like he's conversing mm -hmm. with the land itself because you never see mm -hmm. it. And because he's looking down at it and in my version, it'll be a little bit more on the nose, but it's like, he could have might as well have been having a conversation with the village and all those scenes. It's like that ditch digger who's never seen is representative of the town he's coming to. And I mm -hmm. love the poetic nature of that. And visually beautiful, really mm -hmm. liked it. And every time I saw him going back to talk to him, I was really happy. So that's my favorite scene. I have a question actually about the scene with the digger. So he's digging a hole for a telecommunications tower, right? Uh, yeah. So does that mean that the journalist who's pretending to be a telecommunications technician and the other workers that he came with have basically given him a fool's errand? I don't think no. so. I don't think so. Are you sure? Because if that's the case, I feel like there's... Like, I think that that ties into the thing with the bone. No, no, because the way his, their first interaction, you see that he's surprised by him there. He's like, what are you doing? What yeah. are you digging? You really see him get to know that guy for the first time. Mm. The reason I bring it up is because if he's digging the telecommunications tower as like a fool's errand, and it, it might not even been him, right? Because before he came to town, their contact who was related to someone in the town had already gotten things moving and told everyone that someone was a technician was coming. So I interpreted that scene as being a fool's errand that was given to this guy, which ties into the disruption of the earth, the bone that's pulled from the earth and given to him. It's like, it's, it's his fault and his team's fault that this has happened, that this has been disrupted and the bad omen of pulling a body from the earth. Plus this whole thing of like the earth collapsing in on him the guilt surrounding that, that it's their fault that this guy's in that situation because he dug out that hole because someone from his team instru instructed him to dig this hole for a tower that wasn't going to actually be built by them. Kiarostami plans a lot of these things for his audience. You know, he, he, mm. he revels in people unpacking. He was talking about close up in one of his interviews and how in this one shot, there's an empty can rolling down. And how in a lot of the reviews and interpretations later on, they were like, oh, this empty can is like the emptiness of the character of Sabzion and how he's not what he says he is and all this stuff. And it's rolling down, which is the futility of life. And he's like, no, we were running out of light. We didn't have permission to go inside yet. 
And I just wanted to keep shooting. And that street had a mm-hmm. really nice angle to it. And then we actually came across this can and I just started shooting it, you know? Yeah. That sounds like the thing with the door in Where's the Friend's House when everyone's like, oh, what, what's the symbolism behind the door mm. and this, isn't that, whatever. And he's like, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. <laughs> and that's beautiful. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about this medium is that you can actually invite so many different readings. A least favorite scene. Least favorite scene. Kava, you go first. You start us off. Okay, fine. This is a lot of people are going to dislike what I say, but I I had a trouble with the cow milking scene, not because the poem isn't beautiful and not because the things, you know, the lighting of the scene is actually very beautiful and interesting. There was, I was getting strange vibes off that scene. It was because it's a romantic poem. Yeah. It's a beautiful poem and it's about love. There was just something about these two people. I don't know if I'm too 21st century, like Western view of it, but I was like, no, I think, I think it was, she says she's 16 years old and he's like there and he's like reciting a love poem. And then I think whether or not he's curious, he's deliberately directing her this way, but she was uncomfortable. Yeah. He asks her a few questions. She refuses to answer. And then when she, he recites that entire beautiful poem, you know, the first thing is she goes, your bucket's full. Yeah. Like he, he write, recites the entire poem. And on the last line, the wind will carry us. The wind will carry us. She goes, your bucket's full. Like coldly. Yeah. And I don't know if that's Kiarostami deliberately writing the scene for us to feel like she feels a little uncomfortable. Or not. Yeah. So it was just something about... Is she supposed to be uncomfortable or like bashful? Well, maybe bashful I mean? too. Yeah, like it could I, be both. I feel like the intent was for her to be feel bashful, but I think realistically that woman would feel very uncomfortable. Because she also meant... Like she has a husband. Mm-hmm. He knows she has a husband. He literally mentions it and says that she is that guy's prize. And so he wants to see her face to see if that guy had taste or not. Which is really messed yeah, up. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what set it off for me. It is on my least favorite scene hey, list. Good. Yeah. Um, again, beautifully shot. I think it's the combination, right? And I don't know how planned it was because also Kiara Sami does a lot of post sound work. He cuts into dialogue, mm, yeah. he re records stuff, mm. he constantly intervenes even into his own reality. But yeah, I think setting it up with that question of, oh, let me see your face. I want to see if the guy has taste or not. That immediately yeah. shut me out and down. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you just had the poem or you didn't have this piece of dialogue, maybe if you didn't have the poem and you were just looking at this woman, because I think that the act of milking, it's it it doesn't have to be anything sexual unless you put it, you pad it or frame it with all these other innuendos. So that could be a beautiful Mm. moment. It could be a beautiful tactile scene. I think it's the combination of all these things that made me uneasy and basically distracted me from this incredibly profound poem written by an incredible, prolific woman artist who was working in the 40s and 50s in Iran writing revolutionary pieces of literature that were on par with world-class poets at the time. I mean, she's a Sylvia Plath of Mm -hmm. Iran, but I think she's even more than that. Mm. So it kind of, I think it was the kind of thinking of, okay, woman milking, beautiful lighting, beautiful poem, but this combination just created something quite toxic, I think. Yeah. The last few lines are, 
Lay your hands with those burning memories on my loving hands and entrust your lips replete with life's warmth to the touch of my loving lips. The wind will carry us. The wind will carry us. Yeah. It's a strange last line. I mean, the the poem on itself is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But in this specific context, I don't think it evokes the emotions that that poem, the initial intentions of But he, he doesn't finish it, right? It's creepy. He doesn't finish the... Oh, he does. He doesn't read the last lines. I don't think he does. I thought he did. Oh, oh, he does say the wind will carry us, of course, yeah. which is the last line of the poem. Maybe, maybe he, skips he skips ahead. Skips he censors it. I mean, also, you have to put it in context. And not that it justifies the creepiness. I think our gut feeling is absolutely valid on this. Especially when it's all three of us. Yeah, I think when you're talking about Iranian cinema, especially at that time, it's not like you could tell a sensual love story about how this city boy falls in love with the villager and they have like a lustful experience. So whatever sensual expressions a lot of these filmmakers wanted to express had to always be buried under layers and layers of symbolism so that it can pass the state censors. And um, maybe there was something there that just got too buried or was neglected, but sometimes it's just hard to kind of judge these moments in Iranian cinema without remembering that, oh, they had to kind of run away from all types of censors. But this scene, again, Miley's favorite as well, creepy, unnecessary, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the worst crime ever, which is distracting me from this beautiful piece of poetry by Farouk Farouk. (laughs) Yeah. This was my runner up, my least favorite scene. It's funny because it was Tara's second favorite scene. Turtle. Is the scene with the turtle being flipped on its back. I was like, what the hell? Like, I was so upset. Yeah, me too. I agree. Because especially because I was like, okay, we've we've already shown him flip out at the kid, which shows, okay, he's in a bad mood. He's having a temper tantrum, whatever, right? But then when he does it to the turtle, I'm like, nope, unforgivable. This guy's a jerk. I don't care how much he apologizes. This is like unredeemable. Why did he do this? It was such a jerk thing to do. I'm like, I was not happy with it. I was like, I I don't think, I mean, it doesn't matter if he's redeemable or not. I think it takes a lot of courage to get your protagonist to do something so horrid. And the most beautiful aspect of it is that the turtle then gets back up. And um, I was worried that the turtle wouldn't be able to, by the way. I was so yeah, anxious. I, yeah. If the turtle didn't, I would have been even angrier. Yeah. Kiarasami, a lot of his films are really, really cruel. Like Taste of Cherry is so cruel. The concept of it, uh, close up is even mm-hmm. cruel. Like there is a there is a violence in his films. Um, and there's a violence to death. And I think it that that scene isn't actually about the, the character who's flipping the turtle, it's about the turtle. It's about the turtle finding his way back. And it's about the fact that he's walking on a grave. Again, it's the life-death microcosm. So I wouldn't see it in the context Mm -hmm. of the story and the character's journey, but in the context of life being cruel and then going on. I do like that. Yeah, I was going to say it's the story of uh, one turtle persevering, having to share this world with an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one thing, thing, though, if... If he was passing by him and he wasn't paying attention to the turtle and he flipped over the turtle and then we see the turtle get it, then I'm then I'm on board. Then I'm back on board. Yeah. He did it on purpose. He did. That turtle was innocent. Faran, um, would you say you were shell-shocked when you saw that scene? <laughs> I was absolutely shell-shocked. Completely shell-shocked. I love it. Yeah. 
Damn, that's poetry. Where we discuss our favorite lines of favorite lines from the film. Quotes, quotable moments. Farn, you said that you inherently want to have a rule where we don't discuss the actual lines of poetry in this scene. Yeah, because I feel like it's cheating. It's literally poetry and they're taken from actual poets. Exactly. It's from another. I'll go first because mine will be probably a good example and it's quick. When they were arguing about the delay of her death, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the line of dialogue was essentially, you said it would take three days and then you said it it would take a week. And now we've been here two weeks. Each of us have a commitment back home. We have to know. Give or take a day. How much longer we have to stay here? <laughs> when are we going to return to Tehran? It's up to you. To which he responds, I can't decide for you. How am I supposed to know how long it's going to take? And then he's like, no, you decide. He's like, it's not in my hands. It's in God's hands. What do you want me to do? Strangle her? I really like that back and forth scene. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it was very good. I liked it a lot. Okay, so I have... It's when he's talking to the, the hole digger. And it references Shirin and Farhad, which is this like old love epic. You should look it up. Listeners should look it up. Shirin and Farhad. It's, it's a beautiful story. And so Farhad, the lover, is forced to carve out the side of a mountain. He's given this impossible task to get him away from the woman that he's in love with because the king wants that woman. So he's trying to get her away. And so Farhad is digging out the he's carving out the side of the mountain and when he hears news that his beloved has died and it's it's false news she hadn't actually died and so when this is delivered to him it, it drives him crazy and he throws himself from the top of the mountain so that's the background of the, of the story so then uh, the journalist says to the the hole digger i thought farhad dug bisutun himself you know farhad and then he goes yes he's a local and then the journalist said farhad didn't dig out the mountain and the digger says, I know. He says, do you know who did? And the digger says, love dug it, the love for Shirin. And then he responds, oh, a man of, of love or a man of heart. In, in Persian, love and heart can be used interchangeably here. So he says, oh, a man of love. And the man responds, a man can't live without heart. So he takes that same word of del, and in the first instance, it's used as heart, in the second instance, it's used as love. And I thought it was such a poetic turn on that same phrase his response i thought it was very beautiful i also really really love that line and thank you for unpacking it um so methodically i don't think i could have done that um maybe you can consider that as my runner-up the one that i picked isn't like one of these massively profound poetic lines there is a lot of those but i chuckled and i had to pause the film to take it in when early on there's an exchange between Behzad and the 
the little kid, they're having a conversation about where to shoot this. And the kid says, my mom says, you can't film at our house. It's too small. It's not worthy. It's not worthy. Yeah. Yeah. And then the guy says, but that's not correct. A lot of things are small, but they're worthy. Like you, you're small, but you're worthy. And the kid says, yeah, but I'll grow big, but a house doesn't get bigger. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just so cute and it's a conversation you can imagine between. I think that's one of those moments where I was like, this was a conversation between these two characters and I can see the author's soul in both of them. Mm-hmm. But they're also very mm-hmm. unique to this context, to the story, to the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the moments where I think he's like the dialogue really grips me. And I think this is a great example of them because, yes, a, a kid in that context would be telling the journalist things that his mom probably told him not to. And that mm-hmm. thing would probably be that our house is too small and on TV we want it to look bigger. So let's go shoot it somewhere else. And the exchange, what the journalist says to him is so sweet. And it's one of those moments where you actually feel like, I like this character that I primarily have come to despise. <laughs> I have a question. This is sort of jumping around, but this might be for Tara, who's probably seen the film the most. Who, what is that conversation about with um, Bezad calling his parents and then they're informing him that someone in their, his family has died? Because he goes, Tasli at me, I'm too. Right? So he's like, what is the purpose of that? So he's... Talking to his mom and there is an, you get the sense that there is an anxiety. And at some point the dad actually takes over the call. It sounds like someone, but someone not super close, but someone, maybe a relative, I'm assuming of his mom has died. Or a family friend. A family friend, maybe someone who was on their deathbed. And he's so callous with it. He's like, oh, sorry. Like my condolences. No, you know, I can't make it. Well, tell them. And again, again, he's he's dishonest. And I think this goes back to how Kiarostami views us, essentially, city folk. Dishonest, yeah. manipulative, and so enamored by a villager dying, but completely abandoning death in their own surroundings. But yeah, so he basically says, condolences. And then I guess the mom is saying, can you please come to the funeral? And he says... Uh, no, I can't. And please tell them that you couldn't reach me and I didn't have a phone. And and then at mm-hmm. some point the dad takes over the phone. Uh, but then he's kind of like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Can you pass the phone back to mom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's yeah, it. That's I don't think point. it gives you any more than that. It's It's meant to be kind of opaque, I think. I feel like that's there as a foil to the end of the film, though. Yeah. Because it it, it establishes very early on that this guy doesn't value human life the same way that other people do. He doesn't care that this person has died. His primary concern is to save face and express his annoyance. Only after, at the end of the call, does he express his condolences to his family. But I think that these pieces are laid there so that we get a sense of how he views life and death. So that at the end of the film, once he goes through this transformation where he has a new appreciation for life and for death, when we look back on the opening scene, it shows, oh, this is a different man. Absolutely. Than what we saw at the beginning of the film. I absolutely think that's 
why you see that conversation. And I think there is a transformation, maybe not as blatantly as like we sometimes would like to see, but I think there is enough suggestions mm -hmm. and signs for you to feel like he's changed. Favorite performance. Uh, I'll, I'll go very quickly. I think it was Farzad, the kid. I really liked him. I thought he actually gave a surprisingly good performance. A few times mm -hmm. when he's speaking through the car window, I was like, this guy's a pretty natural actor. You know, I don't see the acting. You know what I mean? Yeah. He felt yeah. like very genuine in his childlike responses. Very sincere. I also very much like the tea server, but I know that's yours, Farhan. <laughs> it is. The tea server was my favorite. Yeah, take it away. And my runner up was the kid. Yeah, my favorite was the kid. Um, but also, I think the protagonist does a good job too. And I don't always yeah. think that with um, non-actors and, mm -hmm. but I, I think he, I think he did a good job. I think there are a lot of the reactions felt really believable and the chemistry between the little boy and him was fantastic. Nitpicks, hot takes, and what aged poorly for you? Uh, Tara, I'd love if you went first. I think we talked about our, yeah. the milk scene, so I won't review that, but I think that definitely aged terribly. And I wonder how people reacted to it even then. I think it is what it is. But overall, if you look at the woman in the film, uh, yes, there is a moment with the tea server being kind of sassy and whatnot, but you only see these women in the roles of servers, milking cows, bearing children. Maybe that's Kiarostami's way of commenting on how women are treated or still held back in some rural context. Because the city, like the protagonist's boss, for example, is a woman. So I think you, you do get a sense that, okay, this is in modern times, at least in some way. But overall, I think there's a lot of missed opportunity for the female characters, mm -hmm. even the woman who's pregnant, because I don't think being pregnant, uh, being any of those roles that you see the woman in, they're not inherently problematic and they're beautiful and they're <laughs> empowering in their own ways. I think it's if you only see them in these glimpses and there isn't any further layers to unpack. I think that becomes stale for me. So mm -hmm. I think definitely it would have been a richer story had we seen a little bit more or peeked a little bit more into conversations among the woman, this enigmatic 150 year old woman who's dying. Who is this woman? You know, how did she live up to 150 years old? I'm, I'm really curious mm -hmm. about why isn't she dying now? How is she still mm -hmm. <laughs> surviving? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you see all these amazing, profound conversations with the men, but with the woman, he's only talking really about them being a woman. So he's talking about mm -hmm. childbearing to the pregnant woman with the other woman who's milking. He's talking about, I guess, love and romance. <laughs> and with the tea server, he's talking about her experience as a woman being it. So it's very on the nose about, again, her being a woman and not necessarily just an individual or a human being. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, quick mention, again, we, we touched on this before, but sometimes this return to nature or a village or some expectation of, of these scenes and people being more quote-unquote primitive or naive or authentic 
that can be problematic for me when it's done top down. Yeah. But that's harder to kind of nitpick because that's maybe also the framework of the film itself is a criticism of that a little bit, given how unlikable the protagonist can be in those situations. Well, just to, to comment on that, that was one of mine as well. But yeah, like Tara mentioned it, it's kind of the point in that it's commentary on it. I like that in the end because it, it did feel like this was a moment where Kiara Stami took some of the criticisms that were levied against him in previous films. And it's a way for him to show audiences that like, mm. hey, I understand what I was doing was wrong. Yeah. And I have grown. And here's the, the character growing past it. That being said, it sounds like when you're going through the BTS that he might not have actually grown from it. And it sounds like he was still a little exploitative of the townspeople. Another nitpick. How is he getting any reception out there in 1999? I don't buy that at all. Like that is, I was like, nope, this is not, that's not a thing. And then my last nitpick is the last chunk of the film felt like it was missing a scene or two. So some of the narrative towards the end was a little confusing. And I think the film could have also, the, the scene where he's taking the photos of the mourners I actually don't like that he's taking the photos of them. I think that it would have really drilled home the message that he was trying to give if he like took out his camera and he's about to take the photo and he, and he decides not to and he leaves. Yeah. Because regardless, he doesn't stay for the whole ritual. Like he doesn't chronicle the ritual anyway. So it's like, well, why is he taking those photos? Like it's it's kind of like a weird middle ground. It would have been it wouldn't been it would have been too tidy and it would have been too satisfying. Buying, I think, of a film for Kiara Stami's taste, if if that happened. They were supposed to be a TV crew to document film footage, not photography, right? They're not a photography crew. No. Because it's a crew. So the end footage, like, he doesn't obtain his goal by taking those pictures. No. That's almost like a halfway, that's like a compromise he ends up doing, right? I felt like he did it for himself. That was my interpretation, yeah. which was slightly more hopeful that... Mm. He's yeah. he's now like, oh, my God, here it is. It's almost like, you know, in, in the wild, when photographers have to wait for days to see like a really rare bird and he's just like mm -hmm. capturing that. But in some of the interviews, the guy who plays this character, whose also, name is also Behzad, says that yeah. in his interpretation, he took it so he can prove to his colleagues that it happens that yeah okay okay because that's the thing yeah i kind of agree with it slight nitpick was the ending does feel suddenly kind of muddled together in a rush and yeah, there could have been slightly better pacing to stick the landing yeah. whether even if it's not taking the photo because at the end not being familiar with exactly what the formal ritual would be and i wasn't sure like okay so was that the goal obtained or was that sort of i get the sense he's leaving right like he's getting his car to go back home so Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure, did he achieve his goal? Was it just to be a ph photographic journalist or was it to be, because he's got a crew so that you don't, if you're a photographer, you don't need a crew. You're, no, no. He, he has a crew and they're meant, meant to make like a TV. Film. TV yeah, report. Okay. Yeah. And apparently the woman is like a hundred and like, she's the oldest woman. That's why she's yeah, really yeah, important yeah. specifically. Yeah. He intentionally doesn't capture the morning rituals. Yeah. They were on their way to it and he doesn't do it. He's like, right. Okay. I've disrupted this. 
And I think the idea is he's like, I've disrupted the peace of this community enough. Yeah. I need to leave. And that's also why he got rid of the bone. Double feature lineup. Do you guys have another film that you think this would pair nicely if you did a double feature movie night? No bears. Mm. Baron just came up with this halfway during the podcast. <laughs> no, I came up with this before. Um, I thought of this beforehand. I would do Drive My Car by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. Oh, oh nice. I haven't seen that yet. Interesting. So that's an adaptation of a Murakami short story to begin with. Mm-hmm. Again, very poetic, but also the setup is also, it involves death. Mm-hmm. It also involves an artist, in this case, a theater director, trying to make this piece and really having a hard time and having a lot of different obstacles and in the process kind of changing as a person. The relationship that he has with this driver, essentially, who's this rural woman, again, that that perspective of a city man away from home in a in a strange new surrounding kind of learning about what's important i guess i initially thought i was going to pair it up with and life goes on and i was really annoyed by that because it's just such a like on it's like it's it can, those two could be one film in a sense it was too close to each other but then i had my connection and i was like this is the best answer and i'm really gonna impress tara with my answer and farm i guess <laughs> but tara especially is uh is any tv or film adaptation of samuel beckett's waiting for godot yes and I will tell you why. Other, other than the obvious is that film is about stillness mm. and waiting. And waiting for moments in your life that will either give you glory or triumph or disappointment or heartache. Obviously, I mean, for the uninitiated, you never see Godot. He never appears. Mm. Yeah. And when I was living in England, there was a Patrick Stewart in McKellen adaptation of uh, mm. The Old Vic. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's X-Men. <laughs> that I so badly wanted to see and it was either sold out or I was poor and it was expensive or something. But yeah. I've seen, uh, I've read the play in school and it's just, I remember being like 20 when I first read it in university and I was like, wow, this play, this like nothing happens and I love yeah. it. Like the story doesn't proceed. And this reminded me so much of Godot. Of they're stuck there yes. and they're waiting for their Godot, which is the death of the woman. And since it's not going to be given to them, they have to find something to do with their time. And that something is to appreciate life and stillness around them. Yeah, no, kudos to you. I actually thought of Beckett. It is it is such a Beckettian mm-hmm. mm. piece. Yeah, I think you're you're right on the money. Yeah. I didn't really give a, my reason for why no bears, but I feel like it's. Probably fairly obvious, and we've already talked about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. If you want to know why, you can go back and listen to that episode. But the gist of it <laughs> is that the the general setup of the film is pretty similar. And I feel like No Bears kind of takes this premise and it expands on it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, it almost feels like a sequel to this. In yeah, a lot of ways. an evolution of the... Uh... Yeah. Can this be a modern Hollywood remake? <laughs> Tara. No. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, listen, and I mentioned this in the beginning. If you really just like look at the log line, there is an inciting incident, um, character obstacle. Like it does really technically have all these more classically Hollywood structured films, not in terms of the acts, but in terms of the ingredients. But because, as you say, the film is about stillness and waiting and life happening as you wait to die (laughs) or for death, the only way to 
really do that theme justice, I think, is by actually getting your audience to look away from the plot and the action and look at a trivial conversation or a ditch digger, a random conversation with a ditch digger Mm -hmm. or some animals and scenes and Mm -hmm. milk and apples and chickens. And I don't think you can get away with that in a Hollywood production. But there is a way that I can imagine this via Almodovar and like maybe with Pedro Pascal as the guy and it's Mm. colorful and absurd and more funny and probably like 20 minutes shorter. So I think there is a way to amp up the absurdity and fun of it. I think giving it the Pedro Almodovar sort of treatment is a very, very good suggestion. He's one of my favorite (laughs) all-time directors, beautiful filmmaker, and I hadn't even... Thought about that. That would be really good. For my, um, can this be a modern Hollywood remake? Uh, and I've given this example before. I often go back to how, uh, yeah, how someone like Wes Anderson's POV would look under a, a film like this. You know, changing the location and tone entirely, of course, but uh, sort of like an indie comedy about waiting, a group of people waiting for a man to die could be a very funny take on this. And I could totally see that sort of quirky comedy sort of indie vibe to it, which would work really well. Farhan, what about you? Can this be a Hollywood, modern Hollywood remake? You know, it's funny. I also thought of Wes Anderson, but my pitch was that in their impatience, they start to plot the death of this old lady. <laughs> dark, dark. Yeah. Final thoughts and grades. Well, I'll, I'll give my... um. Mark, I'll give my grade first and then I'll give my final thoughts after you guys towards the end. Mm-hmm. But I think that the film, mm-hmm. to give it a fair grade, would be around a B minus. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful film. It's an intricate piece of work. It's a very difficult film to recommend to certain audiences. Yeah. And I think with that, it's like a dense piece of literature that mm-hmm. you need to take your time with it. You need to really explore it. It's not an entertaining quote-unquote film but it's one with a lot of heart and meaning so b minus is fair i know it's lower than probably what the rest of you two will give it but uh (laughs) it is on the lower end of the kurostami films for me okay so overall i actually really like the film i liked especially that we see quite a bit of growth in this character. And it seems like mm-hmm. Kiarostami is reflecting on some of the things that bumped me about him as a person in his earlier films. So this mm-hmm. absolutely feels like a commentary on himself and some of the criticisms that he received. Yeah. There were obviously a few areas that the movie bumped me a little bit, the turtle being <laughs> one of them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the film definitely feels like a collection of poetic musings and philosophical discourses. Yeah. Sometimes that's a good thing. Other times I think it it might rely a little too much on poems written by other people, but Mm -hmm. it was a beautiful film and I really enjoyed it. So overall, I give it a B. I would give the film a B plus. It's between a B plus and a B plus plus, but I think it's a B plus. More so for the the courage it takes to make this film, Mm -hmm. you know, especially as a filmmaker who's already made by this time Taste of Cherry and Close Up. Mm. I think it's an incredibly human endeavor and it's trying to capture something that's so fleeting about human life and death and the fleeting nature of it and the absurdity of it. And Mm -hmm. the only way to do that is to really 
dive deep into it and also knowing how he does it as a director mm. the way he kind of gives to the winds and to the waves of the story and and the way it makes you pause and mm. look and even if that makes you roll your eyes a little bit or as they say get sleepy in the theater yeah i think that there is there's such a profound message there buried in there mm. the the film and what it is i think is the message basically and it's not he hasn't tried to make it any more palatable for us just because we've paid to watch a film. Mm-hmm. And I think this film on a big screen is a much different experience. And this is why you have all these wides. And this is why we're talking about Kiarostami, who self-identifies first as a painter and a poet and then a filmmaker. And I think this film distills those interests of his so well. But I think if you experience it on a big screen, you will see details and you will be in this town in a way that whatever we just watched it on will never do yeah okay so that makes the cinema rex show average rating for the wind will carry us a b we're gonna do things a little bit differently this episode so before i give my final thoughts i want to thank you tara for joining us uh faran thank you as always you know how i feel about you kabe thank you very much to our listeners, thank you for Wait, tuning in. Wait, can I in. thank you guys? Oh, no. Yes, Sorry. and um, Tara, you wanted to thank us too? Yes, I <laughs> I wanted to thank you both for inviting me and, and giving me an excuse to kind of dig deep into Kiarostami. And I, it was a very emotional journey for me, actually, because I hadn't seen this film in so long. And, um, and yeah, it was such a pleasure to talk to you guys and hang out. The Wind Will Carry Us is described by assorted critics as a mystery, and to that extent, they're right. We are meant to wonder, of course, who these people are and how they came to find themselves in such a far-flung place with such a seemingly insignificant agenda. By the time we actually discover what these four men are doing here and why they've taken so much interest in the health of an old woman, it no longer really matters to us anymore. Like the characters themselves, we become immersed in the day-to-day rhythm of this at once surreally alien and improbably familiar little community. But to describe the film with this singular identifier is entirely Miss Kiarostami's point. There is mystery in life, of course. But it isn't the glamorous, maybe they're spies kind of mystery that we so often find ourselves escaping into at the movies. It is rather the mystery of the mundanity. The strange shooting script by which all of us on this homey little planet of ours seem to play out in the same microdramas, the same rivalries, the same petty squabbles. The mystery in life is that it could contain no real mystery and yet seem so mysterious. And with that, Tara Akhtoshlu, will you honor us with a reading of The Wind Will Carry Us, written by Farooq Farooqzad. To our listeners, Be'omi de Didar. باد ما را خواهد برد در شب کوچک من افسوس باد با برگ درختان میادی دارد در شب کوچک من دلهوره ویرانی است گوش کن وزش ظلمت را میشنوی من غریبانه به این خوشبختی مینگرم من به نومیدی خود معتادم گوش کن وزش ظلمت را میشنوی در شب اکنون چیزی می گذرد. ماه سرخ است و مشوش 
و بر این بام که هر لحظه در او بیم فرو ریختن است ابرها همچون انبوه ازاداران لحظه باریدن را گویی منتظرند لحظه ای و پس از آن هیچ پشت این پنجره شب دارد میلرزد و زمین دارد باز میماند از چرخش پشت این پنجره یک نامعلوم نگران من و توست ای سر و پایت سبز دستهایت را چون خاطره سوزان در دستان عاشق من بگذار و لبانت را چون حسی گرم از هستی به نوازش های لبهای عاشق من بسپار باد ما را با خود خواهد برد باد ما را با خود خواهد برد Music for Cinema Rex was written and performed by Sohail Sadinejad.